welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to Series 9. This is the second episode, Episode 2, and it's entitled The Parable of the Great Banquet, although there's other material uh, as well in this episode. It all links together and the parable itself is the second half of the passage that we are studying today. We're studying in Luke chapter 14 and we're going to be uh, studying verses 1 to 24. We're going to study it in different sections. Well, for those of you who've followed series 8, you'll know where we are in the life of Jesus. He's well and truly on the road to Jerusalem. He's left Galilee, where he spent three years approximately of his ministry, and which is very extensively described um, in the earlier chapters of the Gospels. That was the main ministry of Jesus in the north of the country, his home province. And he based himself in the little fishing port of Capernaum near the Sea of Galilee, not very far away from his hometown of Nazareth. But now in series eight, that's all behind him. That's all history. And in fact, Jesus will at this point never return to uh, Galilee until the time of his death in Jerusalem. Uh, Luke in particular gives us lots of material in this period and that's supplemented with material from John who indicates that Jesus made a couple of private visits to religious festivals in Jerusalem during this time but they're to be distinguished from Jesus's plan to make a very big public entry into Jerusalem at the end of his ministry. That's where this whole story is heading and Jesus is anticipating that this will lead to a final confrontation with the religious authorities, will lead to his execution, his death and his resurrection. He's warned his disciples very clearly in the Gospels. We have three decisive predictions that he's already given of what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. The disciples are very confused and uncertain, even hostile to this idea. Um, so we know the direction of the story and Luke makes the structure of the story particularly clear to help us understand uh, what is happening. So Jesus is traveling around from place to place and in our last episode for example in Luke 13 verse 22 uh, Luke describes the fact that Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. That's a very vivid description of what's happening at this time. Many of these towns and villages he'd never been to before because it, he didn't live in that area, uh, in Samaria, in the middle of the country, in Judea, in the south. He lived in the north. Uh, so he was going to all sorts of different places, sending his disciples out in pairs um, to preach in other places that he couldn't get to. And that's described in Luke 10, when Jesus sends out 72 uh, disciples in pairs to preach uh, and teach in the places that he wanted uh, covered in the country. So there's momentum, there's interest. Lots of people are seeing Jesus for the first time who've never seen him before because he's come to their particular district for the first time. We've already noted that opposition uh, is building up and opposition to him appears in almost every single episode in this particular area of the text. So this is a higher level of opposition than he experienced in Galilee and it's led by the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, representing the formal legal, judicial, 
council called the Sanhedrin that ruled over Jewish religion under the overall political leadership of the Romans. So this is the story we are in. And Jesus is encouraging people really urgently to take the opportunity to believe in his messiahship, to, to trust him, to have faith in him, and to turn away from wrong attitudes towards him. And people are wanting to do that, but the religious authorities are trying to prevent them by publicly criticizing him and challenging him and disagreeing with him. And this is a major factor when Jesus makes private visits to Jerusalem, uh, as we see from John's Gospel, where on both occasions in the two episodes that John describes, uh, between John chapter 7 and John chapter 10, two events, two visits to Jerusalem, on both occasions, uh, Jesus nearly gets stoned to death. Uh, they pick up stones to throw at him. So it's a complicated and challenging situation. That's the context in which we find Jesus on one Sabbath day in an interesting context. Let's turn to Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. That sounds rather sinister to start with, doesn't it? It's on the Sabbath, and there had been many controversies about the Jewish Sabbath day, the particular Jewish holy day, uh, which is now celebrated on a Saturday um, by modern Jews, uh, because they didn't like uh, Jesus's religious activities, particularly his healing taking place on the Sabbath. But anyway, that gives you the context. There's suspicion, there's difficulty. The Pharisees uh, are watching him. They're also reporting back to their leaders in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, and others, that they're explaining to them exactly what's happening with Jesus as he's traveling around. It's interesting that this was a prominent Pharisee, quite senior in that uh, group of uh, highly uh, motivated um, religious leaders. Maybe he was even a member of the Sanhedrin if he was that prominent. We don't exactly know, but what we do know is that Jesus was being carefully watched. Let's read on. Verses 2 to 6 of Luke 14. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling in his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So, taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on a Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. You can see how tense that uh, situation is. The context is this. As I've explained in earlier episodes when the Sabbath has come up, but let's just say it again so we're quite clear in case you haven't heard those earlier episodes. In the Ten Commandments, in the Law of Moses, in Exodus chapter 20 and repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Fourth Commandment is very clear 
it calls on the Jewish people to rest on the seventh or Sabbath day. This is the foundational command that is being disputed at this particular point and is disputed frequently in the life of Jesus between Jesus and his opponents. Now, there are other commands in the law of Moses that define what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. The purpose of it is to worship God, to rest from your work, to provide rest for uh, people who are economically weaker in society so they're not uh, pushed on uh, like slaves uh, without any rest and also for the family benefit and for the community. But the question is, what constitutes work on the Sabbath? And that's what the Jews couldn't agree on. There's some basic criteria in the law of Moses, but people like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, as described here, had created literally hundreds of extra regulations, which were not in God's word. They were not in the Old Testament. They were not in the law of Moses, but they were widely practiced in Jewish society. And one of the key issues then is the question, should healing take place on the Sabbath? Notice when Jesus asked them the question, they don't answer. Then he conducts the healing, then he asks them another question, and they don't answer. They're very keen not to be caught by Jesus's highly intelligent questioning. Because we all know the answer to the question that he asks in verse 5, that if a child or an animal falls down a well on the Sabbath day, you're not going to leave it down the well. It'll die. It'll suffer. So you'll, in an emergency where there is need for mercy and help, the standard understanding of the law of the Sabbath was you, you could go and help in an emergency. You could help. You could show mercy and compassion to people or to animals in need. And of course, this is the situation that Jesus discovered where there was a man with this abnormal swelling. And probably this was the only time that he would meet Jesus. Jesus's mercy and compassion uh, ensured that he healed him straight away and did not disqualify the healing simply because of the day of the week. He was being watched. He was being criticized. He was being reported on to the Jewish senior authorities in the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. It was a sinister situation. But Jesus is not deterred. He's not intimidated. And he then goes on and has a meal with this prominent Pharisee and with some of his friends, many of whom are Pharisees and teachers in the law. Verses 7 to 13 to 14. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. 
For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to the host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, the social hierarchy in Israel was very strong. And if you have a big meal and a big reception in your home, the places around the table where people would sit or recline uh, were very important. There was a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy in the family where people sat and a hierarchy in the community. And in the community, the Pharisees were more or less the top of the social ladder. And they had their networks and their friends. And it appears that this Pharisee gave the best places to other prominent people. But Jesus is teaching two points here. He's talking about humility and he's talking about hospitality. The humility of the person who comes into a social occasion and doesn't assume that he or she is going to be important is something that Jesus commends. He says it's better to take the back seat, to take the humble place, to be at the back of the crowd, to take a lower seat at the table and be raised up. Social humility is being commended. And the reason is that social humility indicates spiritual humility which creates openness to the gospel. If you're humble in society, you're more likely to be humble in relationship to the greatest authority of all, God himself. And that's the significance of that social humility. And Jesus knew that the Pharisees were socially proud. They loved their places of honour. They loved to be greeted in the marketplaces. They loved the greetings on the street. Jesus says this in other places. And Jesus commends not only humility, but hospitality. Opening your homes to those who have a need rather than those who are going to affirm your importance and maintain the social hierarchy. Opening your homes to the needy, that is a true indication of loving your neighbour. And that also indicates an openness to God. Being socially humble and being hospitable to the poor are indicating factors that you're going to be open to the gospel and to receiving Christ. And that's why Jesus commends these. And he's challenging the social attitudes of the Pharisees and their friends who believed in hierarchy and loved being at the top of the hierarchy and who liked to keep quite a distance between themselves and people less privileged and especially the poor and destitute. And so this leads Jesus on to develop some of these themes further in a much wider ranging parable, the parable of the great banquet, which is the theme we've taken for today. Let's read that parable, Luke 14, verse 15 to 24. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, 
A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who'd been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, get out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. You can see how this parable is carrying on some of the themes, the themes of hospitality, of humility um, and openness to God. Uh, that we were looking at in the earlier section. The Jewish expectation in verse 15 is the starting point. The man who said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now we've come across this concept in earlier episodes. Jewish expectation was that in the next life, the afterlife, the eternal life, that God's kingdom and his rule will be symbolized and characterized by feasting, by uh, large feasts with lots of people, lots of joy, lots of provision and lots of food. This is the concept of the messianic banquet in the messianic age, very Jewish idea. We see it referred to a number of times by the prophets in the Old Testament. Let me give you an example. Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8. This whole section in Isaiah, indeed this whole chapter, is a reference to the end times. Verse 6 of Isaiah 25. On this mountain the Lord Almighty will, will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he'll destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He'll swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from their faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. This poetic, prophetic language describes the Jewish expectation that God himself will come and reign on earth and that he will prepare a feast for all peoples. And all peoples means all nations, and it will include prominently those Jews who've been faithful to the covenant, and it will include 
people from all nations. Death will be swallowed up forever. That just gives you a flavor of some of the Old Testament background to this concept that is being captured here in the statement by one of those at the table, eating at the feast of the kingdom of God. And that is the basis of Jesus giving this amazing parable, very challenging parable. The invitation comes to the Jews. Verse 16, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. In all the presentation of the gospel that Jesus speaks about, teaches or enacts, the Jews are the first invitees, the first people invited. And so a certain man invites many guests. However, there are many excuses And in the story, somebody's bought a field, someone's bought some oxen, someone's got married. And so the story goes on. People begin to make excuses, a really scandalous thing to do in the society of that time. uh, Major feasts and banquets and social invitations uh, were not to be missed, not to be turned down. But here the people are turning down the opportunity to enter into this banquet. And this banquet is a symbol of God's kingdom, the messianic kingdom, which I've just described to you. And so Jesus is clearly teaching here that those invited are going to say no. And particularly those Jewish invitees, the first invitees, are going to say no with weak excuses. None of these excuses are really that strong. You know, you're on the way to try out your oxen. Well, you can do that the next day. I bought a field. I must go and look at my field. You can do that the next day. I just got married. Well, so what? Um, You can enjoy your marriage for, for a long time to come. Can you not give half a day to come to a feast? The excuses are weak, but they're real. People say, no, I don't want to attend. And so the master gets his servants to go and invite other people who weren't on the original invitation list. The poor, the outsiders, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Go down the streets and the country roads and pick up anyone who's able to come. The second invitation is to the outsiders. The wider invitation will bring far better response than the initial narrower invitation. This is really quite a challenging story to tell to these people. Here are the elite of that area sitting around a table in their social hierarchy with their well-ordered places, with the poor and the marginalised nowhere to be seen. Gentiles nowhere to be seen. This is a social club. And Jesus is invited to attend the social club uh, led by a prominent Pharisee, someone who was well-known, probably wealthy, and possibly even a member of the Jewish ruling council. And Jesus tells this devastating story. He describes not this man's dinner, 
but God's invitation to his feast in the kingdom and says many of the people who've been invited initially are going to say no. Scandalous, incredible that this should happen. So as we make some reflections and just think about the significance of what we're talking about here, I want to just draw up some of the themes and some of the possible applications of the themes of this remarkable parable and the remarkable run-up to it in that occasion of the dinner situation, the social occasion with the prominent Pharisee and his friends. My first observation is the conflict that is going to lead to Jesus' arrest, trial and death is building up. The tension is almost felt as you read the text. I wonder whether you had that feeling as I read it out loud. Jesus is being carefully watched. They're watching everything he does. I wonder if you know that feeling. A lot of people in the world today live in countries which have uh, limited freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and freedom of religion, and freedom of movement. Many people listening to this message and this episode will know what it means to be carefully watched in your country or where you're living. Or maybe you're even a refugee in another country and you're being watched for different reasons. Jesus was under that watchful eye of the Jewish religious authorities who are linked indirectly to the Roman state. So we can get into the feeling of the text very easily if we know what it is for our actions to be watched. Sometimes we might live in a free society, but we're being watched in another sense. We're being watched for the integrity of our Christian life. We're free to express it, but people are there to see whether we are contradicting ourselves, whether we're living like hypocrites or whether we're living the same message that we speak. There's a real challenge for you. Jesus was being carefully watched, but no one ever found him to be a hypocrite. No one ever found him to have double standards. No one ever found him to have uh, secret bank accounts or secret relationships or a power struggle going on uh, to gain political power. None of this was remotely possible in Jesus' life. He was being carefully watched, but no faults could be found. My second reflection is concerning the Sabbath, the, the topic we looked at earlier on. It's a flashpoint of conflict between national religious tradition and the Christian faith as it emerges. And that flashpoint uh, keeps producing really tense moments in the gospel story as Jesus particularly heals on the Sabbath. We've looked at a number of incidents across the, the, the Gospels over several different series. And the same sort of pattern happens. Jesus heals on the Sabbath and it provokes a backlash from those who say he shouldn't be doing that. Similar issues can exist today. True Christians who can't fully participate in aspects of their national culture or their national religion or particular religious ceremonies can find themselves criticised because they're doing things differently. And there can be flashpoints around certain ceremonies, certain festivals, certain traditions, certain parts of civic life. 
certain parts of community life in towns and villages. And this may uh, make some sense to you if that's your living experience. For example, for example some tribal traditions uh, in different parts of Africa that contradict Christian faith. Some issues to do with witchcraft, for example, and the local witch doctor, which we can't participate in as believers. There are flashpoints of conflict in every society. And the Sabbath was one of those flashpoints for Jesus. Notice his pure integrity. He respected the institution, but he didn't accept the human regulations. He wasn't willing to disobey what he knew God called him to do in that context. Another reflection is to think again about the attitudes of humility that are mentioned early on and hospitality and particularly our attitude to the poor, to the outsider. It's one of the most distinctive features of Christianity according to the lifestyle of Jesus and the example of the early church, is the openness to the marginalised in our community, the willingness to help practically and the willingness to engage in terms of sharing our faith and joining together in community with people who are marginalised, who are poor. And the parable of the great banquet tells us that in God's kingdom, many, many people who are saved will be those who are marginalised by the standards of this world. And some people have even said that many Christian revivals start with the poor people in a community. Historically speaking, there's a lot of evidence for that. God moves powerfully, very often amongst those who have least resources and least human security. So our attitude to those in need and in poverty should be very open-hearted, very inclusive, and very much filled with faith, respect for them as fellow humans, and faith that God can work in their lives. My final comment is to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, and to read to you just four verses. Revelation 19 describes the final moments of this world order just before uh, Jesus comes again and it describes in uh, prophetic language the second coming of Christ. But I want to just read to you some verses that capture the idea of the feast of the kingdom of God. In this case it's the wedding supper um, of God's uh, Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the Son of God. Just listen to these verses in conclusion and you'll see that this theme of God's feast in God's kingdom is brought to conclusion ultimately at the second coming of Christ. Revelation 19.6 Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands 
for the righteous acts of God's people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. We know that this bride, the bride of Christ, is a symbol of the church. Invited when Jesus comes to the wedding supper of the Lamb, that time of rejoicing and salvation that Jesus was speaking about in the parable of the wedding banquet and the other teaching that he gives in this episode. This is our great expectation and our great hope as Christians. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.